Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 139. Wow. You know, life is a game of inches. It really is. I know that's mainly a sports analogy in our country, but it really is so apt in so many of life's circumstances. Sometimes the smallest of things affects the outcome of a decision, and the smallest of decisions affects the direction that's taken. And then the trajectory of that change ripples through a lifetime of living. (laughs) Okay, that's a little dramatic, and today's episode is not about anything that is going to change the outcome of my life. But you'll understand the analogy once I tell you the story. So, let's get started. First things first, though. This is a back-to-JFK episode, and listeners will likely like that, but it's out of sequence a bit. Perhaps this particular episode should have been done a hundred episodes ago. The good news is that for those of you who are getting tired of listening to the history of Cuba, you are probably saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And speaking of Cuba, we have literally turned the corner on the Cuba episodes, sort of at the top of the mountain looking down into the valley. In fact, there is only two major topics left in the Cuba series, the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that means a few more episodes on those topics, and we'll be back into the thick of pure JFK assassination storytelling and research. But for today, the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis will just have to wait. Because today, just five days before Christmas, We're going back to our core for this episode, and I can thank The Megyn Kelly Show for that. If you're like most people, the title of this podcast episode caught your eye, perhaps more than a typical title from me would, and that is, of course, the basis of this wander. Okay, let me start from the beginning. About three months ago, I was on vacation in Napa Valley on a bucket list trip that was filled with spectacular visits to a handful of boutique wineries. The weather was just right, as it often is in the valley out there. Nothing but clear blue sky the entire time we were there. All the elements of a perfect trip in place, done with my wife and some of our closest friends. On the way up to the rooftop bar one afternoon for happy hour at our hotel that we were staying at, And after an afternoon of wine tasting at some local wineries, I got a call on my cell phone. The number popped up and there was no name on it, no caller ID. My wife often scolds me for picking up these kinds of calls when no caller is identified. Just let it go to voicemail, she says. Most of the time, she's right. But we were out of town and I am always a little concerned when we are away What if there is an emergency and someone is trying to contact us? You know, the same old paranoia that has me looking underneath the hotel room bed three or four times before we leave. Oh, well. Anyway, I was digressing there. Back to the call. You see, this number popped up on my cell, and I decided to answer it. And 
On the other end of the call was a spectacularly nice young lady who represented that she was the producer of The Megyn Kelly Show. And they would like me to do an episode with Megyn Kelly, featuring the story behind our podcast, The JFK Assassination. For a moment, I wondered, well, first, how did she get my cell phone number? And second, was this for real or just a cruel joke? (laughs) Well, it turned out to be real, very real. She went on to explain that Megan had decided to do a week of shows in late December, beginning on or around December 19th, a week of shows around Christmas time that would feature some important historical events that shaped our country. In my mind, at least this one episode on the JFK assassination was one of those moments where life really was a game of inches. Had the shot or shots that hit the president in the head on November 22nd, 1963, had they been just a few inches in almost any direction, he would have lived, and the world would likely have been a very different place. Not only would the trajectory of the president's life have been different, but in this case, the trajectory of the world would have been different. That we are, almost to a T, certain about when looking back at history. Yes, it was a game of inches. And likely, there would have been no JFK, the Enduring Secret podcast, either. But that would have been just fine with me, by the way. Nevertheless, being invited on The Megyn Kelly Show is a big deal, and I knew it would help the podcast visibility immensely. And I was tickled pink about it. I asked the producer how they found me, and she said, we listen to your podcast, and we are fans. Once back from Napa, I engaged in a preliminary discussion with the producer, again, by phone, (laughs) this time her cell number captured by name so that I wouldn't miss the next call. And as you might expect, it was another spectacularly nice engagement with this wonderful young professional who responded almost immediately to every communication I made, giving me encouragement that the show was truly interested in the topic. Quickly, she gauged the depth of the dive that we were doing on the podcast. The scope of our project was really overwhelming compared to what would be needed for one episode of The Megyn Kelly Show and what realistically could be covered in that time frame. So she emphasized the need to narrow the topics to what could be done on one show, perhaps if things went well, two shows. And she also emphasized that Megan was a stickler for concise answers, which was something I expected to hear about a radio-slash-YouTube show with a definite time limitation. After more discussion about what topics should be covered, The producer decided that the episode should be narrowed to just the events that happened that day in Dallas on the day of the assassination, in Dealey Plaza itself, in maybe a small vignette on the Warren Commission too, and its formation and objective, and perhaps, if there was time, a little bit of time devoted to the various conspiracy theories. Unlikely, after all of that, that there would be room for any more topics. Well, I agreed. That was more than a mouthful for an episode that was scheduled to last between an hour and an hour and 20 minutes. So the next step was to help their research staff decide on what topics, especially topics that I had already covered in episodes, would be good to include in the 
episode with Megan on the show. I was very pleasantly surprised because they had already culled through my entire list of episodes and a handful of topics, well, more than a handful of episodes, got their attention. As we began to prepare for this exciting opportunity to tell the story of the JFK assassination, it dawned on me that we did not have an episode that tied together the story of that day in Dallas. At least that moment in Dallas, in the plaza. Our episodes were so deep into the details that a single episode simply telling the story of Dealey Plaza was never produced. Given that the Megan Kelly show wanted to tell just this part of the story, I set out on an exercise to summarize those moments in my own vernacular, a script, if you will, for the show. A way to prepare for Megan's interview and to ensure that the things that should be said, the story that should be told when you have just an hour or so to tell it and have it be just about Dealey Plaza, well, that it didn't leave something too critical out. So that's why I wrote the script of just such an episode. It probably should have been an episode made for our series a long time ago. And while it was a bit of work, some work I had not anticipated, it was for a good cause, to get ready for the Megyn Kelly show taping. And, you know, preparation is so important. The show taping was set in the weeks before that I began my preparation. I didn't want to sound foolish or make a mistake on the show, After all, I was being asked to be on the show for good reason. So I began by listening to the old episodes in our podcast series that the producer and her staff had pointed out as being ones that they were interested in. So I began by listening to the old episodes in our podcast series that the producer and her staff had pointed out as being ones that interested them. Once I began to listen I realized that I had forgotten many details related to a whole lot of these topics. A fascinating phenomenon, but not unusual when you are talking about a topic that has more details than any other crime story ever told in America. So lots of studying ensued, and I had fun reliving the work I had done in each episode. Some I had not listened to in quite some time. Some were way better than I remember them at the time. And I was pleasantly pleased, and some were not so good. And I was constantly reminded that even to this day, some of the episodes in the series contain sound quality problems that I have, even to this day, not yet quite overcome. But as I say, I am an N of one, and in the overall context of producing the show, it was good enough. But still, maybe if time permits in the future, at some point, I'll go back and re-record some of them with the better quality microphones that I now possess and use to record the show. I had taken my son to South Florida the week before the taping. A good friend of mine and a lifelong Miami Dolphin fan had invited us to join them at the Pittsburgh Steelers-Miami Dolphins game in Hard Rock Stadium in South Florida. It was an especially important game in some respects as it was a game that would honor the 50th anniversary of that undefeated 1972 Dolphins team. You've heard me talk about them before on the show. The only team in the history of the NFL to go undefeated and win the Super Bowl. That's a little piece of Americana. One of my heroes as a youngster was Larry Zonka. He would be there. 
He was the fullback on that team. He was there to help accept the honor and accolades among so many others. I can still tell you who all 22 starters and the kickers were by name and number on that team, that 72 Dolphins team. And to top it off, we also love the Steelers. So it was a double payout that night. And the Dolphins squeaked out a victory, too. All in all, a good night. Well, all weekend before, I prepared for the Megyn Kelly show, the taping. Last-minute cramming to be at my best. And then Sunday night came, and we all made our way to the stadium. I marveled at what the Hard Rock had become. I had not been to a game at the Hard Rock in quite a few years. The upscale and beautiful event venue that so embodies what the NFL has become these days. It was an amazing transformation, but still a far cry from the gritty days of football in the early years of the league, a far cry from the iconic Orange Bowl, a stadium that I sat in many times to watch a game and one that nowadays you can only find mostly in black and white pictures from a bygone era. When the point came at halftime to honor that 72 Dolphins team, a group of guys, by the way, that still get together every year to have a toast once the last team in the league finally loses its first game and keeps the Dolphins' perfect season record alive for yet another year. When that point came and I saw Larry Zonka take the field using a cane, it was a sad and joyous moment all at the same time. Glad to see him staying at it. Glad to see him there. But sad to see him succumbing a bit to what happens to all of us eventually and particularly to football players and athletes. Here was this magnificent fullback and one of the most iconic and recognizable players in the history of the league who was an integral part of a team that had retained the most coveted and now what has become the most enduring NFL record of all time. And he was in the winter season of his life, this lion of a man. There was a lot of emotion there for me as I thought about that team and how that perfect season seemed to impact the trajectory of my own life. I began to ponder, what was the secret of this enduring record? No pun intended, but it must be another enduring secret in my life. And then, suddenly, it came to me again, as it does time and again in life. It was a game of inches, and that was the answer. And the tape was on the 72 teams' side every time that year. The Dolphins were down 21-3 going into the fourth quarter in an early game against the San Diego Chargers back in 72. Somehow they pulled it out and won 24-21. Fast forward to the playoffs, and they were behind in the AFC Championship game that year against the Steelers. And a faked punt by Larry Seipel, resulted in a 37-yard run and a first down and a change in trajectory of the game, a game that they eventually won and which propelled them into the Super Bowl. It was a game of inches. All of these stories and more produced a perfect season, the only perfect season ever sustained by an NFL team. After the game, I was excited to know that the Megan Kelly Show taping was a couple of days away. Time to rest up and get ready. And then the day came, and almost everything went wrong. First, in the few minutes before the taping, the engineers for the Megan Kelly Show came onto the Zoom call 
and they did not like the lighting. And we fooled around at the last minute to gain an unsatisfactory result for the Zoom call, totally rattling me as I was already nervous and had to do what many others were doing on the other side myself. I was moving things around, including my monitor, a monitor that contained my notes. I was told that Megan was running late as well, and her producer apologized for that, but due to the delay, they would have to jump right in to the taping. No chit-chat, no getting to know each other for a minute, no warm-up before the tape would be rolling. She had a hard stop, and if we were to talk about things in advance, there simply wouldn't be enough time to get things taped and done. I understand. After all, I spent most of my life in the busy world of big business. So, here we go. On the new schedule, Megan arrived promptly, and we dove right in. But, unfortunately for me, it went downhill from there. We lost the internet connection at least two times, and maybe three during the taping. I can't remember exactly. My usually reliable Xfinity coverage at my home office was on the fritz that day, as luck would have it. To her credit, Megan Kelly was so patient and polite with me, despite what I am sure was a frustrating moment for her. But she seemed a little off to me, and I wasn't sure why. Little did I know that she had lost her sister over the weekend. It was a wonder that she was even on with me. I learned this afterward when I listened to the beautiful tribute episode that she had made for her sister. And I was also much chagrined because over that same weekend, I had sent her a copy of episode 87 to listen to. Our listeners will recall that episode actually unnumbered was a special tribute to my son, Alec, and to my dad and the new baby, James. After learning of her sad news, I felt so awkward that I had sent that over at such a tender and raw moment. But what can you do? My understanding is that Megan actually listened to it. In the bigger scheme of things, rather than simply participate in an interview, I tried to make it a venue for telling the story of that day in Dallas. It was not the right approach to do an episode with Megan. I flubbed it. Well, all of those factors contributed to a mediocre interview on my part with Megan Kelly, and I knew it. She ended the interview at about 45 minutes of taping. It was 15 minutes before the scheduled time we had to complete the production. Afterward, I sulked and had recollections of a bad basketball game in high school, one where I had choked a bit and the outcome of the game was left in the balance. Well, I felt like I had choked here. I called the producer up the next day and offered to retape the show, and I even recorded a narrative that came from my scripted notes from the show. The show's producer reiterated that the normal process would be to shore up the exact date during the week of December 19th, and my show would air, and she would let me know when. And they would do the editing a few weeks prior to the show's airing. And even though I thought I had seemingly botched the interview, it was still going to be aired. It was good enough, no matter how hard I was being on myself. After all, my wife Kelly had watched some of the taping surreptitiously. She snuck over to the side of my office as we were taping, and she thought it was quite good as she listened in. Biased as she was, well, maybe she was right. I was just being too hard on myself. After all, it was just a simple episode on the Megyn Kelly show. Others close to me 
said the same thing and reminded me that we are almost always our own worst critic, especially when it comes to things like this. But in the end, my wife was wrong and my instincts were right. I would speak to the show's producer again one day in early December. She had some disappointing news for me. So kind and so polite, she would reassure me that my episode was good enough to air and that they had planned on airing it, but a technical IT problem occurred and they had actually lost my episode. I offered to retape it, of course, but it was so close to the production date that schedules and other factors just would not permit that. Needless to say, I was quite devastated. I had made quite an investment of time to get ready to be on the show and getting exposure for JFK, The Enduring Secret, on The Megan Kelly Show would have been an awesome moment for the podcast. But it was not to be. And the show's producer, who I will say again, was completely professional and engaging and someone I really grew to like because of the way she handled the circumstance. Well, I called her back again and pressed her hard to tell me the truth. Was it just not good enough, the interview? just not good enough to be aired? And if that was the case, could she provide me with the tips for a better outcome if there was ever a next time? In the end, she assured me that the explanation she gave me for not running the show, and it's an explanation I affectionately termed and told her that it was her dog ate my homework story. Well, she reiterated that it was indeed true and that our episode in the final analysis, while maybe not the best episode done for the history series, was certainly good enough to air. I hope that's true. But regardless, she was a perfect gentlewoman delivering that story, and believable in the end, even though I'm old enough and wise enough to know it's not likely to be the entire story of why my episode didn't run. Still, a thank you to Megan Kelly and especially to her lovely producer for being so kind and for giving me a chance and for reminding me once again that sometimes life truly is a game of inches. So, without further ado, let's listen to the show that never was. Let's listen to the Megan Kelly Dealey Plaza episode. I hope you enjoy it because you can only get it here. The story of the JFK assassination, simply put, is better than any crime story ever written. Fact is better than fiction. But in the case of the JFK assassination, some fiction is now accepted as fact. That's the fascination of it. But the societal implications are far-ranging. He was our first truly modern president, handsome, with movie star-like qualities, and a beautiful and elegant and educated wife, and from a family that was iconic for sure, and that in the aftermath has been portrayed as being one of America's royal families, so to speak. And he himself had a powerful intellect, which, you know, sometimes gets lost in the narrative about him. He was the persona of hope as the United States and the world raced toward the 21st century. 
As the president, he found himself at the crossroads of a major change in the way the world viewed the Cold War fight. His death may have defined the way we engaged in Vietnam, and it may have had implications for civil rights here at, at home as well. There are seismic movements in the world and the way the world order operates, and his death changed the trajectory of them. There is no doubt about that. And of course, there is the more proximate question of whether or not you can believe that one man, one ordinary man, Lee Harvey Oswald, can all by himself alter history in that way, can outsmart the Secret Service and the entire protection apparatus surrounding the president. Or was it a conspiracy? And even more chilling, was it a coup d'etat? the one and only time in the history of this country that violence was used by existing forces within the government to effectuate a regime change. Did that really happen? If so, the implications are incredibly far-reaching. Unlike any popular uprising done in the light of day, it was done underneath the covers in a very cloak-and-dagger way by a group of very powerful people. We are coming up on the 60th anniversary, and most of the eyewitnesses to what really went on are gone now. We are literally running out of time to determine the true answers. The jury is out as to whether we will beat the clock and discover the true answers before the time runs out. History never occurs in a vacuum. To truly understand the assassination, you have to understand the times, the mid-century America that we had at that moment. We were only 18 years past the end of World War II. 80 million people died in that war. The only nuclear devices ever released on the face of the earth were let loose then. It was the greatest loss of life ever to occur since the beginning of mankind. It extinguished fascism for the moment, but it replaced it with an epic ideological fight between East and West, in the form of the Russians and Chinese as the bad guys, and their systems of communism versus the U.S. and the rest of the West and their systems of capitalism. It was an epic fight to preserve free society and the idea of a democratic form of government within a republic. Perhaps one more powerful concept should be highlighted here. We trusted our government implicitly. Sacrifice for the good of the order was still an unquestioned element of society. The government had given us no reason to doubt its veracity, its authenticity, its genuineness, and it had led us out of the darkness of the Great Depression, through the horror of Pearl Harbor, and eventually on to save the world order against a truly evil foe in Hitler. Evil seemed to be clearly defined, and it was nowhere near our government. General Eisenhower had preceded Kennedy as president eight years from 1952 to 1960, presiding over the largest peacetime economic expansion in U.S. history. Eisenhower was a war hero, a Republican. He was a man who knew the tragedy that physical wars create. He would get lost in his desire to fight covertly, as a result, and it sent the CIA on a trajectory that was tragic for the Kennedy administration. You also have to appreciate that in 1963, we were only on the verge of the electronic age. Television was still relatively new as a medium. There were no iPhones with cameras or cameras on every street corner, no internet, no Facebook, no Twitter, no YouTube, no podcasts. The media was concentrated and it was easier for the government, especially coming out of the World War II era, to influence, if not downright control, the narratives that were coming from the news. You know, there is a famous line in the movie Mississippi Burning where Gene Hackman describes the times in a way that describes the power of local authority to tell the story in those days, or hide the truth. He basically conveyed that in a small town in the South in that era, if a sheriff said it happened that way, 
Well, that was the story, and that was the end of it. We know times have changed dramatically. I think for younger people, it's almost hard to imagine how much they have changed in 60 years. Probably more social change in that time frame than in almost any other 60-year history of the country. And that is what makes it so hard to try and understand the complex background of the times in which the assassination took place. But this was a fleeting moment in modern history before the iPhone, before the internet, where such a dastardly act of assassination could occur in broad daylight and the perpetrators, all the perpetrators, could have gotten away with it. For me, for those that have seen the series Mad Men, the Donald Draper persona and the many scenes of that series that portray the ways of the 60s, it's quite relevant. It was a time of great privilege for white men, a time of continuing exploitation of women, a time of don't ask and don't tell, and of plausible deniability because there were no cameras or recording devices. In short, there was a great deal of hubris that was present in powerful men because so much could be hidden from view. That story plays over and over in the assassination narrative. You see, Kennedy was elected in 1960, and it was one of the closest presidential races of all time. Beating out Nixon, it was the Republican vice president under Eisenhower. It was the first televised presidential debate in history. Kennedy's performance on television won the day. Nixon, looking anxious, with sweat on his brow, under the camera lights, next to a suave and better-looking Kennedy. He won hands down on that front, although some folks who were simply listening to it on radio said that Nixon got the better of him. It was alleged that JFK's father, Joe Kennedy, had arranged for help from the mafia and the unions during the 1960 election, helped to get out the vote in two critical locales, Chicago, which would define the outcome of the Illinois electoral vote, and West Virginia, both swing states that could and did define the election. By 1963, Kennedy was finishing year three of the first term of his presidency. His political circumstance was shaky for various reasons, including his previous handling of the Bay of Pigs circumstance. And even though the Cuban Missile Crisis was a successful diversion of a world crisis, it came at a price that, at least internally within the administration, the Warhawks viewed as even more risky the so-called trade for removal of missiles from Turkey. You must add to that an economic situation in the country that was shaping up as a pause after eight years of expansion under Eisenhower. So he was a candidate for re-election, and securing Texas was critical for winning in 64. Without Texas, there was no second term. Texas in general, but particularly Dallas, was a highly conservative political environment in those days. John Conley, who was the then governor of Texas and a Johnson confidant, along with Vice President uh, Johnson, urged Kennedy to come to Texas, their home state, and help mend fences within the state's leadership and also to turn it into a good old political fundraiser. The three of them met in the summer of 1963 in Austin, Texas to plan the trip, and they settled on the fall of that year for a visit. In the meantime, a difficult circumstance would begin to develop with Vice President Johnson. There were investigations going on of men closely in his orbit. Bobby Baker, who was Johnson's aide and protege in the Senate, and Billy Saul Estes, another character, and I'll say more about that uh, if we have time, both circumstances were explosive. And both were about to potentially implicate Johnson in a scandal or scandals large enough 
that would likely have been dropped from the 1964 ticket. There was the possibility that it would have ended his political career. Vice President Johnson's circumstances were precarious enough, and these charges were serious enough that it was a real possibility that this and more might have happened. Well, the visit to Texas was on, and it was decided that Kennedy would visit San Antonio and Houston, and then finally on to Fort Worth for a breakfast the morning of November 22nd. And then to Dallas, where Kennedy would participate in a parade through the city. And all that would culminate with a lunch and a fundraiser at the Dallas Trademark. After the fundraiser, the president was scheduled to go to Vice President Johnson's ranch in Texas, outside of Austin. I want to go back for a second on how hostile the environment was politically at the time in Texas. A few months before the president's trip to Dallas, the United States Secretary to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, came to Dallas and he was spat on, he was heckled, and actually hit with a sign. He warned the president's advisors, telling them that he thought it was not a good idea for the president to go to Dallas, basically saying that it was just not safe for the president to go there. On the eve of the president's visit to Dallas, some of the more conservative elements in Dallas distributed about 5,000 copies of a flyer with a headline, Wanted for Treason, and a picture of Kennedy with a discussion of their assertions. Could you imagine that going on in today's environment? I'll start with the night before when they got to Fort Worth. The president and the first lady arrived on Thursday night, November 21st, at Carswell Air Force Base, which is just outside of Fort Worth. And it was late. The plane didn't get in until around 11 p.m. that night. They then make their way to the Hotel Texas in Fort Worth. And along the driving route to get to the hotel from Carswell, even though it's late, there's a groundswell of well-wishers. The crowds and the enthusiasm were incredibly supportive for the president. I mean, it was a great way to start the trip, and it was somewhat of a rainy day, so the turnout that night was especially gratifying. It's important to note that the Secret Service detail that traveled with the president to Texas was not finished once the president and his wife were tucked in about 1130 that night. Many of them would make their way out for what was more than fun at a local club. It was a club named The Cellar, where they stayed out until the wee hours of the morning, clearly ensuring that they would not have been at their best the next day. And in fact, the Warren Commission made a point of exploring this topic in their report. That is, they excoriated the Secret Service regarding its inadequate and ill-equipped approach to guarding the president. The next morning, the day of the assassination, November 22nd, at about 8.45 a.m., President Kennedy makes his way outside the Hotel Texas in Fort Worth, and he spoke to a highly enthusiastic and supportive local crowd with all the principal political players in Texas in tow. Congressman Jim Wright was there, Vice President Johnson, Senator Ralph Yarborough, Governor Conley. By the way, Yarborough and Conley despised one another. That morning in the Grand Ballroom of the hotel, the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce hosted a meeting on the president's behalf where he spoke to the attendees and famously, during his remarks, his lovely wife Jacqueline makes an appearance. The president's remarks that morning were playful and well-received, and in a moment of reverence for his wife, he reminds the audience that she may be getting more attention than he or Lyndon, on the trip anyway. He was presented with a Stetson cowboy hat, which he elected not to try on there, but promised he would put it on when he was back in the White House. Incidentally, this trip was only a few months after the president and his wife had lost a child in childbirth. And it was really the first big political travel event that Jacqueline and JFK 
had undertaken uh, together since the, that tragic loss. They both knew the political importance of it, given the re-election campaign that was shaping up. Right after the speech, one of the more tragic decisions is made. There was a chance that the rather inclement weather would clear and that they would go without the bubble top on the president's limousine when they got to Dallas for the parade there. Kenny O'Donnell, one of JFK's most trusted confidants and part of the group affectionately known as the Irish Mafia, would make that decision, along with others in the entourage. Kennedy was Irish, as we know, and the Irish Mafia was a euphemism for a small coterie of his closest advisors. They were all Irish and all men that had been with him for some time. The bubble top was not necessarily designed to be bulletproof, by the way, but who knows how it might have played out if the president's bubble top had stayed on. After the breakfast meeting with the Chamber of Commerce in Fort Worth, the president and the entourage would make their way back to Air Force One, and they would make the short flight from Fort Worth to Dallas and land at Love Field. The idea was to have a grand entrance into Dallas at Love Field and tour in a limousine along a parade route, hopefully to the pleasure of large crowds, a route that would eventually take the president down Main Street in downtown Dallas before it finally entered the Stemmons Freeway and ended up at the Dallas Trademark. There, the president would deliver a lunch speech to the Dallas Citizens Council and others in attendance. It was about a 45-minute parade route through the city, and the original intention was that the event at the Trademark would start at noon, and the president would arrive around 12.15. The timeline changed when the president decided that he would take the extra time at Love Field for he and Mrs. Kennedy to greet individuals who had come to see them arrive, and welcome the president and the first lady. Some of the most beautiful and most memorable film footage of the trip was taken at Love Field as Mrs. Kennedy in that beautiful pink dress and pillbox hat was presented with a bouquet of roses. As they leave Love Field, there is a rather famous piece of footage of one of the Secret Service men who was waved off the running panel on the president's car. And he then raises his hand in apparent frustration and disbelief as it was standard operating procedure to ride shotgun on the side of the car so that if something happened, agents would be closer by and could react quicker. That piece of footage would be foretelling. But the president wanted clear visibility to the crowds, and that is likely the logical answer of why that happened. Conspiracy theorists love to point at this piece of footage as meaning more. There were upwards of 13 cars in the presidential parade lineup as they proceeded to leave Love Field. There was a lead car in front of the president, and the president's car was second in the chain, followed by a follow-up car full of Secret Service agents, and then a car carrying Vice President Johnson and his wife Lady Bird and Senator Ralph Yarborough. The lead car carried Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry and Dallas County Sheriff Bill Decker, along with a special agent in charge in Dallas of the Secret Service detail, uh, Forrest Sorrells. In the president's car, there were two Secret Service agents up front, Bill Greer, who was his trusted driver, and Roy Kellerman to his right. And in the middle seats sat John Conley and his wife. Conley was to the right and his wife Nellie in the left seat. Conley would be directly in front of Kennedy and thus in the line of fire. And of course, he too would be hit. Interestingly enough, there was some last-minute shuffling in the sequence of cars. The press cars, or at least some of them, were originally scheduled to be closer to the president. But they were ultimately placed, all of them, toward the middle of the motorcade, too far back to be in a position to take any direct pictures 
at the moment of the assassination, of the actual assassination itself. They did take some important pictures, but it was not of the act with the president in it. This has always been one of those curious facts as well, at least for conspiracy theorists. They will ask, was this just coincidence or part of the conspiracy? You know, placing them back that far in the lineup. So next, the president and the first lady make their way along the parade route in Dallas, and thankfully, the weather had begun to clear up, and it was shaping up to be a pretty nice day by the time they got into the car and headed downtown. Along the parade route, Kennedy stopped on a couple of occasions to shake the hands of a few in the crowd. It was a magnificent display of support by the citizenry of Dallas. As the limo nears the end of the parade route on Main Street, it approaches Dealey Plaza. As the limo enters Dealey Plaza, in response to the overwhelming support of the crowds, Nellie Conley turned to the president and remarked, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Right around the same time, the president's limousine then slows down and it makes a right turn down Houston Street off of Main Street. Now it's entering the heart of Dealey Plaza. As it approaches the Texas School Book Depository, it slows down even more to make a sharp turn to the left onto Elm Street. And then, just a few seconds later, the shots would ring out. Shots that would change the world forever. At first, the FBI would conclude that four shots were fired at the president. And they would place that in their official report filed just a few weeks later. But by the time the Warren Commission was finished, the official version would be that only three shots were fired at the president, all from the sixth floor of the school book depository, and all fired by one gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. Later, the Warren Commission would grapple with how to explain all the injuries to Governor Conley and all the injuries to the president with just two bullets that hit them and one that missed them. Just three shots in total in their version of the story. And with a missed bullet missing the president and Governor Conley and ricocheting somehow with either a fragment of that bullet or a piece of concrete from the curb where the bullet may have hit, flying into the face of James Tagg. Tagg was a Dodge salesman on the way to a date with his future wife, a man who got snagged in traffic and disembarked from his car right at the triple underpass just about three minutes before the president's entourage got there. All of this together, along with the time limitations placed on the scenario by the Zapruder film and the tortoise-like firing mechanism of an old Italian rifle, were the scientific limitations under which the magic bullet theory was born. A theory that had a single bullet enter the president's back, exit through the president's neck, then head downward and to the right. Only then to enter the back of Governor Conley, shatter one of his ribs, exit the front side of his body through just below his right nipple, and then head downward again. Not finished yet. And then, for a finale, shattered a bone in his right wrist, and then exited and landed in his thigh, only to apparently fall out of his body while he was on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital. And then, have a hospital employee, Daryl Tomlinson, find it, in a state of minimal damage. Thus the term, pristine bullet. And of course, according to the official record, we know the second bullet that hit destroyed the president's head. The plaza is a wide open area, and this was at the end of the parade route, so crowds were thinning out a bit. But in reality, it was a great place to catch a glimpse of the president. 
especially because the president was slowing down and then following the outline of the plaza. So you would have a good look at him and Jackie up close for an extended bit of time, all at the very end of the route. And this was before the car was to proceed along Elm Street and then through the triple underpass and then on to Stemmons Freeway and ultimately to the trademark for lunch. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words here. And so getting online to see the pictures of the plaza will help with that description. You can find it all over the internet. Abraham Zapruder would take the famous Zapruder film standing on a small concrete structure in the vicinity of area famously known as the Grassy Knoll. He forgot his camera that day, and were it not for his employees who urged him to go home and retrieve it, the film would not have been made. He had vertigo, too, and if it were not for Marilyn Sitzman standing up on that concrete block with him, he may have never taken the film from that vantage point. He would take a film that was only 26 seconds long, but it would become one of the most important pieces of evidence in one of the most important crimes this country has ever seen. There were other films taken that day, but none would show the assassination in such graphic detail and become a linchpin around determining what happened. It would also have a life of its own as an incredibly valuable piece of private property. There was a very large Hertz rental car sign that told the time, and it was on the top of the Dallas School Book Depository Building, and just after the sign turned to 1230, the shots rang out. In reality, there are various accounts of how many shots were taken that day, but as I said, the official version states that there were three. Some estimates take the physical evidence and say it might have been five to seven or more, but earshot evidence is generally less. Clint Hill was the Secret Service agent in charge of Jackie Kennedy's security. He thought he had heard a firecracker, but soon realized it was something more. He would react quickly, stepping off the running board of the follow-up car and sprinting toward the president's limousine. We're all reminded of that famous clip from the Zapruder film, where he can be seen first struggling to get himself up onto the back of the limousine and then gathering up Jackie and nudging her back into the back seat in order to protect her. In her shock of the moment, she had literally climbed up onto the rear trunk of the limousine, attempting to retrieve a piece of the president's skull that had been blown out. Realizing what happened, the president's driver, Bill Greer, sped up after first slowing down and quickly made his way through the triple underpass. And within seconds, he was headed to Parkland Hospital, driving the car at speeds upward of 70 to 80 miles an hour, with Clint Hill attempting to secure himself still. It was about a five-minute or so drive to the hospital, but it must have been the longest five-minute drive ever taken. And sadly, it was pointless. The president still had a heartbeat, but for all intents and purposes, he was already gone. We'll get back to the president at Parkland in a minute, but for right now, let's go back to Dealey Plaza. In the aftermath of the shooting, it was pure chaos. A lot of screaming, yelling, and crying, just disbelief. There were literally hundreds of witnesses to the crime that day, including all of the bystanders in the crowd, some much closer than others, and some who became quite famous as a result of what they saw. But in that moment, they followed their instincts as to where the shots might have come from, and fearlessly in the moment, they attempted to chase the perpetrators. A group of them charged up the small hill that is directly on the south side of Elm Street. They followed a motorcycle policeman who attempted to ride his motorcycle up that same hill, but couldn't quite make it up, Famously, that area behind Elm would be known as the Grassy Knoll. And at the top of the knoll, there existed the most famous picket fence of all time. 
the place where many believe a shot came from, a shot from the front that hit the president on the right side of the head, a shot by a second gunman, a shot that proves conspiracy. When that group reached the top of the grassy knoll, they continued northward into the parking lot in front of the railroad yard. Another group of them headed farther down on Elm Street toward the Stemmons Freeway near the triple underpass. That was another place where a shot from the front could have come from, and certainly where this group thought shots might have come from. Still, another group felt the shots came from high up in the Texas School Book Depository building. Almost immediately, Police Chief Jesse Curry, who was in the lead car, radioed to get men quickly up in the area where the railroad yard was, above and behind the grassy knoll, where he thought the shots might have come from. Dealey Plaza is sort of an acoustical cavern, this great open space that is surrounded by tall buildings on two sides and bounded on the other side by the triple underpass with the railroad yard in the background. There is no doubt that people were positioned all over the plaza, people in different positions, people that all heard different things. Some heard three shots, some heard four, some heard even more shots than that. And of course, the question of origin, if there were three shots, did they all come from the school book depository? Or could one or more of them possibly have come from behind the picket fence in front of the grassy knoll? or elsewhere. There was no unanimous or at least definitive answer from this gigantic population of people who saw and heard it happen. But there really was one person who should have been able to solve the controversy of the shot coming from behind the picket fence. Lee Bowers was a terminal tower operator for the Union Terminal Company, and he was sitting in the elevated watchtower that is situated in the parking lot behind the grassy knoll. No one had a better view of what might have been going on behind that fence. He was elevated and staring right there. So if there had been a second shooter there, he should have seen it. There are things he did see. Starting at about 12.10 and occurring over the next 15 minutes or so, three cars would enter the parking lot in succession, two with the same out-of-state license plates and both covered with mud up to the windows. They would enter and, as he describes it, probe the area behind the picket fence and the parking lot with the man driving the second car talking into a microphone-like device, something quite unusual for 1963. All three cars would come in and circle the lot and then leave. And that all happened just a few minutes before the assassination. And then Lee Bauer would see two men behind the picket fence, standing perhaps about 10 feet apart, and without indicating any observation of foul play or even interaction between them, he would acknowledge a disturbance around the time of the shots. A flash of light, perhaps. Well, you know, Lee Bowers was plenty observant, and many thought he might have seen more, but was just hesitant to say more. He would mysteriously die in 1966 in a car accident on a lonely road in Texas. Now let's turn to the depository for a second. Motorcycle patrolman Marion Baker just happened to be making the turn off of Main Street and onto Houston Street at the time the shots rang out, and he was sure that those shots came from high up in the Texas School Book Depository, from the way the pigeons had hurriedly vacated the top of the building. That was a clue to him. So he races on his motorcycle to the front of the building, dismounts, leaving his radio on, races into the building, literally physically runs into the building manager who joins him in his quest to get higher up in the building, where Baker thought the shots had come from. 
Together, they run to the elevators, but the elevators are not working. Another strange fact, by the way, they were temporarily out of order just for that moment. So they take to the stairs. Less than a minute and a half after the first shot is fired, Baker and Truly are passing the second floor. When Baker peers through the glass and gains a glimpse of a man, and so he detours quickly. Here he is already with a drawn revolver in hand, entering the second floor. Baker had just found Lee Harvey Oswald. Baker orders him to stop, and Oswald doesn't about face. By this time, Roy Truly, the building manager, catches back up with Baker. Truly identifies Oswald as an employee of the book depository. And Baker, on Truly's word, let Oswald go, and then Baker continues upward in his search of the building. So, in a fleeting moment, Oswald went from being apprehended by a policeman within about 90 seconds of the assassination to a man headed out the front door of the school book depository on an escape route. But he took time to gather his Coca-Cola up first before he left the lunchroom. The Coke that he had gotten from the Coke machine moments before. You know, we don't have enough time today for all the tidbits about the goings-on that day in Dealey Plaza, but one that I find most compelling if you gravitate toward conspiracy and this is an eerie one, is this. There were three key instances that day in Dealey Plaza and the vicinity where officers of the law that included two Dallas policemen and one member of the Sheriff's Department, three different men, encountered other men immediately after the assassination who produced credentials indicating that they were Secret Service agents. And yet, after the fact, it became clear that these men were not Secret Service agents. They were imposters. Take the first instance. As both officers and citizens charged up that hill, the grassy knoll, there in the parking lot at the top and on their way into the railroad yard, Joe Marshall Smith, he was the traffic cop assigned right at Houston and Elm in front of the depository. Well, as he reached the parking lot, he encountered a man dressed in sports clothes with hands that looked like an auto mechanic, a man who identified himself using Secret Service credentials. This is documented in sworn testimony to the Warren Commission. There were two other instances as well. Seymour Weitzman from the sheriff's office would encounter a man in that same vicinity near the knoll and actually hand him a bone fragment that he had just retrieved, ostensibly one that came from the president's head. And finally, D.V. Harkness, the officer famously seen on a three-wheeler and who supervised the entire group of traffic cops on patrol that day, would race to the rear of the depository building just a few minutes after the assassination with the intention of sealing off the rear exit of that building. And he would encounter two men there, two men that would also present Secret Service credentials. Here's the problem with all of that. In the aftermath, the small coterie of Secret Service agents that were there in Dallas that day, either the local agents or the ones that travel with the president from Washington, well, they were all accounted for. There were 11 of them in total, as I recall, and they were all in other locations at that moment. They were not in Dealey Plaza. There absolutely was not a Secret Service agent stationed up in that area. So who were these men? They were clearly imposters. And why were they, at that very moment, there and using fake Secret Service credentials? These were three officers of local law enforcement who encountered the same thing. Moments after the crime, and all three of these men testified to this effect under oath in front of the Warren Commission. Testimony taken in 1964. Sadly, the Warren Commission lawyers taking the testimony and 
asking the questions of these witnesses, refused to follow the line of questioning once these matters were revealed. (laughs) As I like to say, they let that sleeping dog lie. It's just a perfect example of how they delicately sidestepped every fact that came to light once it was determined that the real job was to support the idea of a lone gunman. Any fact that was not consistent with a lone gunman theory was somehow ignored or discredited. You know, as the shots rang out, there were three African-American men, employees of the school book depository, that were watching the parade through the windows of the depository, only they were on the fifth floor, and the assassin was just above them, just a few feet away on the sixth floor. These three men had been temporarily reassigned to lay a new plywood floor over an existing and rickety old wood floor made of two-by-sixes with holes in it that made it easy to hear sounds from above. And all three of them had actually been working that morning laying some more floor up on the sixth floor. One of those men standing just below the assassin would hear the shell casings eject and hit the floor after each shot and the sound that an old bolt-action rifle makes as it ejects a shell and then cocks and fires. The sound of those shots would be booming, and the story of those shells dropping on the floor and being heard by Harold Norman on the fifth floor was so convincing as evidence of shots coming from the sixth floor that this entire scene would be reenacted for each and every member of the Warren Commission upon their visit to Dallas. Each of the commission's members would make their way to the fifth floor window in the southeast corner of the building and listen as an FBI or Secret Service agent who was positioned on the sixth floor cocked a gun and dropped shell casings on the floor. Down on the ground and in the plaza, Howard Brennan was the only eyewitness that day that claimed to have positively identified Oswald, but there were problems that quickly developed with his testimony. D.V. Harkness, the same Dallas policeman that encountered the Secret Service agents at the rear of the depository, would then head to the railroad yard and come upon a series of men tucked away in railroad cars. After getting reports over the police radio that there was a man proceeding along the railroad tracks with a rifle. These men in the railroad cars were arrested, and famously three of them were photographed being marched through the plaza and on their way to jail. They were subsequently released. The records of their arrest remained elusive for many years after, which, as you might expect, fueled conspiracy theorists. All three were positively identified after a project years later unearthed the original police records surrounding the arrest. In between, there were all sorts of speculation. Frank Sturgis and Howard Hunt of Watergate burglar fame were alleged to have been the mystery men, fueling discussions about CIA involvement in the plot. Charles Harrelson, the father of the famous actor Woody Harrelson, was a contract killer who was also the only person in a hundred years to be convicted of killing a federal judge, Judge Wood. Harrelson would later confess to being part of the JFK assassination while in a drug-induced stupor during a prolonged standoff with Texas Highway Patrolman on a very lonely stretch of road in Texas. So let's turn back to Oswald for a second. Oswald escaped quickly that day. He walked seven blocks down Elm Street, and then he took a bus headed for the Oak Cliff area. He was not a lucky guy that day, but the bus quickly became ensnared in a traffic jam that was created by the assassination chaos itself. So he got off the bus. He walked a couple more blocks, and then he took a cab. He was dropped off a couple of blocks past the actual address of the roomy house that he was staying at, presumably to ensure that he didn't run into a policeman that may have already been there. 
he was already on the run. And then he went inside the rooming house where he was observed by his current landlady. Clearly, he was moving quickly and in an agitated state. He changed up his clothes a bit, putting on a light-colored jacket, and he picked up the pistol that he owned, and he headed off into that Oak Cliff area. In one of the more bizarre moments of the day, Oswald's landlady would assert later that a police car pulled up in front of the house right around the time Oswald had arrived and beeped twice, then left. Try to interpret that one. It was only minutes later that Oswald encountered Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett at the corner of 10th Street and Patton in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas. Tippett was at that street corner. He was the sole policeman in police car number 10. As Oswald approached the car on the passenger side, several witnesses looked on as Tippett got out of the police car, and by the time Tippett had reached the front fender cowl on the driver's side, Oswald shot Tippett four times, and he was killed instantly. There were multiple and credible witnesses that day that saw Oswald shoot Tippett, although for certain technical reasons, they could not match all four bullets taken from Tippett's body back to Oswald's gun. They did, however, match all four shell casings to his pistol. Oswald continued on and not far away from the Tippett murder scene, and after some maneuvers, he ducked into the Texas theater. But he did that without buying a ticket. And the glaring sounds of sirens were already in the air, and with everyone's antenna up, a local store employee saw it. And that led ultimately to the police finding their way to the theater. And eventually, the police surrounded the theater building. Police would enter, and then the house lights would soon go on in the theater. And Oswald would jump up and say something like, this is it, or it's all over now. And a brief physical struggle with Oswald then took place. And in the struggle, he would draw his revolver and attempt to fire the pistol. Thank goodness the firing pin on the gun malfunctioned. And so no shots were fired in the theater. He got a really good shiner out of it, though. It took four officers to subdue him. But he was taken into custody, and by this time, it was about 1.45 p.m. He was hauled out of the theater and already facing what was becoming a hostile crowd right there in Oak Cliff. And then he was whisked downtown for questioning at the Dallas police station. Among his possessions that day was a fake ID, a selective service card with the name Alec James Heidel on it which happened to match the paperwork that was found related to the guns that were ordered, mail order, by Oswald earlier that year in 1963 and sent to a post office box, Box 2915. Over the years, there's been some controversy among conspiracy theorists as to whether the fake ID was part of the original inventory of items on his person and in his wallet at the time of arrest, or if somehow it was added later once the police knew that the Manlicker Carcano rifle and the pistol used in the killings were ordered using that assumed name. Early that evening, he was charged officially with the killing of Officer Tippett, and later that night, he was officially charged with killing the president. He would be interrogated for 12 hours over the next 48 hours or so. It was the last 48 hours of his life. Before he was scheduled to be moved to the Dallas County Jail on Sunday morning, a routine transfer of sorts for someone charged as he had been. And of course, he was shot to death by Jack Ruby Sunday morning in the garage of the Dallas Police Department on live TV. Jack Ruby was a local nightclub owner with mob ties. It's astonishing that there was no recording devices to take down verbatim what was said in those 12 hours of interrogations. Only notes from the interrogators and observers that weekend that consisted principally of Dallas police investigators, FBI, Secret Service, postal inspectors, 
and at least one member of the U.S. Marshal Service. And the written accounts by the observers were not always entirely consistent or inclusive of everything that was said. Again, almost unbelievable. This was the crime of the century in the United States and no direct recording of anything said by Oswald. But then again, they may have been afraid of what they might have heard. And this certainly was a way of avoiding the dilemma of such circumstance, at least in the beginning. Meanwhile, let's go back to Parkland Hospital for a moment. The scene was almost unfathomable as the president's body was lifted from the car onto a gurney and wheeled into one of the trauma rooms. The president was given the last rites after two local priests were called in. Jackie stayed with him all the way through until they finally pronounced the president dead at 1 p.m. It was hopeless from the start as the physical damage was unfathomable. Part of what created controversy later was the fact that the president had been shot in the neck. For a reference point, think right below where the Adam's apple was. And during the life-saving procedures deployed by the trauma team at Parkland, they performed a tracheotomy, which is a small incision to allow for the insertion of a breathing tube directly into the trachea. Well, this occurred right where the bullet penetrated, and it obliterated the bullet hole itself in the front of the neck, rendering it impossible to study forensically. Later, this would create real problems during the autopsy and spur quite a controversy as to whether this was a bullet hole wound of entrance coming from the front or a bullet hole wound of exit coming from the back. What happened next was horrific. You see, back then, even though there had already been three assassinations of American presidents before Kennedy and numerous other attempts on various presidents, there was still no federal statute making it a federal crime to murder the president. Murder was a state crime covered by the laws of the state in which it occurred, in this case, Texas. And by law, the local authorities had jurisdiction over the president's murder investigation. But in the mayhem of that moment, and Jackie Kennedy's desire to get back to Washington, and the fact that she was not leaving without the president's body, Ken O'Donnell on the president's staff and others made the decision that they would commandeer the president's body and quickly get it loaded onto Air Force One. The Dallas County coroner, Earl Rose, had already arrived, and before you know it, there was literally a shoving match in the middle of the hallway as they attempted to remove the president's casket from the trauma room and place it in a hearse bound for Air Force One at Love Field. You see, it was the law. The murder had been committed there in Dallas, and the Dallas County coroner had jurisdiction over the autopsy by law, and the coroner stood in the door trying to prevent removal of the body. It was one of the sorriest sights of the aftermath. No one right or wrong morally on this topic. Just also heartbreaking. And it became even more so when later that evening the autopsy was performed at Bethesda Naval Medical Center. And it was clearly botched by just about all standards. And there is a great deal of suspicion, even to this day, about what may have gone on that night at the autopsy. Some of those details are truly unbelievable, if true. But I'll leave most of that for episodes of mine, if you care to listen. Vice President Johnson, of course, went to the hospital and he waited up in a, as secure a spot as they could quickly find. There he waited to hear the status of the president. And it was not long until the news reached him and suddenly Johnson was president now. Johnson quickly, but as surreptitiously as possible, made it out of the hospital building and headed toward Love Field where Air Force One and Air Force Two were located. In a split-second decision, Johnson would decide that he and his senior advisors 
would ride on Air Force One, President Kennedy's plane, and not Air Force Two, as they all made their way back to Washington that night. This decision by Johnson was an incredible source of tension on the plane that day. Having the Johnson folks and the Kennedy folks all on the same plane as the Kennedy contingent did not like Johnson and vice versa, it was almost unfathomable to the Kennedy folks that Johnson would do that under the circumstances. He had his reasons, and Johnson had the good sense to wait and fly back with the president's body and with Jackie. Leaving Dallas without her would have been a PR blunder, and he knew it. Before they lifted off, Johnson took the oath of office on the plane with Jackie standing nearby. It was for all the world to see with a transition looking orderly, if not moribund. He called Robert Kennedy himself before the flight took off to confirm the exact process he should undertake. It was a crude and a cruel attempt to reach out to a man he hated and who hated him. Robert Kennedy was not in favor of having the ceremony there on the plane and preferred that it be carried out in Washington. Johnson would later say that Robert sanctioned the idea of executing the oath of office right there on the plane, but clearly Robert did not. Prior to the ceremony, Lady Bird and others asked Jackie if she would like to change out of the bloodstained clothes she was wearing for the pictures of Johnson swearing in. She would answer so many times that day, no, to the same question with her own very appropriate litany. She would say, I want everyone to see what they have done to Jack. There was a bit of a mini Irish wake in the rear of the plane where the Kennedys were sitting in vigil with the president's casket. This was a moment where Jackie drank scotch for the first time with the Irish Mafia men as they lamented the loss of their leader. In terrible sorrow, sitting by his side as he lay next to them in the casket, Jackie would already begin on the flight home to plan the state funeral that she believed should be much like that of Abraham Lincoln's. She would also object to an autopsy and would have to be convinced that it was required. They would arrive around 6 p.m. back at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington and would be met by Robert Kennedy, who accompanied Jackie and the president's body to Bethesda for the autopsy that evening. Kennedy was a Navy man, and Jackie felt like it would be right to have the work done at the Naval Hospital. Johnson would step off the plane at Andrews and up to the microphones and make a sad and short statement that seemed just enough for the humbling circumstance that the nation, indeed the world, found itself that night. Let me say a few things about conspiracy before we dive right into the various conspiracy theories that are out there. You know, to this day, in theory, the seminal question surrounding the question of conspiracy is a simple one. If a conspiracy existed, was it a coup d'etat, a plot from within, for the purpose of seizing control of the government? Or was it more simply a revenge or hate crime effectuated by forces outside the government for other purposes or other aims? In a sense, a more garden-variety political assassination, if there is such a thing. Let's not forget, on the afternoon of the assassination and after Bobby Kennedy got the news that his brother was dead, he called John McCone, who was the CIA director, and he asked him point blank. He asked him if the CIA had done it. Of course, McCone told him no, but after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, as the story goes, JFK had threatened to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. And of course, there were elements within the CIA going the other way. And those elements held a great grudge against Bobby and Jack. William Harvey was a great example of that. Unfortunately, in practice, the world is not really that black and white. You know, 
to say that the CIA or our government did it or the mafia or the Cubans or the Russians did it? No, I don't think so. But to say that a rogue group of individuals, a mix from all these various radical groups acting together could have done it? I think the answer is a definite yes. And could others have aided and abetted by simply standing down that day? Sure, that is all possible. And there are no shortage of conspiracy theories, by the way, because there were many people with clear motives to kill the president and to kill Bobby Kennedy as well, or find a way to render him powerless. And of course, killing the president would render Bobby Kennedy powerless. And that is an awfully important precept for us to understand when evaluating a number of the conspiracy theories, many of which may have been aimed at JFK as a way to neutralize Bobby. The mafia is a prime example of having a motive to kill JFK in order to neutralize Bobby. The other important concept to get settled on, a concept that has slowly evolved over the years as the cumulative assassination investigations have revealed more of what was true within the government at the time, is the concept that there very well could have been two conspiracies for vastly different reasons. The first conspiracy being the one to kill the president, and the second being the government process of covering it up. And the two may very well have not been connected, but it doesn't exclude them from being connected. Either way, there was most assuredly a cover-up by our government, and that required a conspiracy of sorts. It was, in raw terms, a total abdication of responsibility to get to the bottom of the crime. And it was done at the only time in history that it was really possible to do so. When the trail was fresh, right after the crime occurred, and instead, the government made the decision that for the good of the order, they would do everything possible to bend the facts to suit a predetermined narrative. A simple narrative of a lone gunman, a lone assassin, a nut that was now dead. So. Case closed. You see, it started out as a public policy decision for the good of the order, and it ended up as a cover-up of epic proportions, one that made a mockery of the good work that the Warren Commission and its staff set out to do, 26,000 pages of documentation that would lay the groundwork for a wave of suspicion. You see, the government had very legitimate concerns in the early stages of investigating the crime that possibly Cuba or Russia, or even China, might be behind the deed. And if they were, there was a very real possibility that pursuing such a circumstance would spark a nuclear retaliation and possibly World War III. The new president, Lyndon Johnson himself, cajoled Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the United States, into taking the role as head of the commission to investigate the crime by proclaiming that such a commission was necessary to avoid just that and to avoid possibly the loss of 40 million lives in the event of a nuclear war. To top it off, you really have to appreciate how intertwined and intermingled some of these groups were in the early 1960s. The mob, the CIA, the Cubans, they were all twin sons of different mothers in those days. It's hard to believe that the underbelly of the world operated with the interconnections between all of these elements. It was a relic of pre- and post-World War II America. We'll get to that in a minute, but let's point out the main groups who were under some suspicion. And these are in no particular order, as I don't want to give away anything that I am thinking, since we haven't reached the end of the podcast. First, the anti-Castro Cubans, particularly those with ties to the Bay of Pigs fiasco, and there were quite a few of them. Second, the American Mafia. 
Third, our own Central Intelligence Agency or rogue elements of the CIA. Fourth, Vice President Lyndon Johnson himself for reasons we can explain. Fifth, the Cuban and Russian governments. Sixth, the Secret Service. Seventh, extreme right-wing forces within the U.S., which included a myriad of characters, including a bizarre story related to Joseph Miltier, where he predicted the exact act that the president would be shot with a high-powered rifle from a high floor of a building. And he related to an informant in Miami, William Somerset, about two weeks before the Dallas event. Kennedy was supposed to have a similar visit in Miami on November 18th, just a few days before, but it was canceled due to security and other concerns. Incidentally, there was another trip planned to Chicago, and that was called off as well. And the story of that one makes it look like Dallas, Miami, Chicago, and possibly even Tampa may have been some sort of redundant option to off the president in similar plots across the country. And of course, the above groups are like ingredients in a good recipe. Almost every popular conspiracy theory contains a few characters from each of these individual conspiracy groups, all intertwined, as we said previously. So the New Orleans conspiracy is probably the best known because of the popularization of it in the JFK movie. Jim Garrison was the only district attorney in the country to bring a murder case to trial regarding the JFK assassination when he indicted Clay Shaw in New Orleans. And while the case against Shaw himself was flimsy and never proven, it helped to expose an incredible set of interconnections between elements of the CIA, the Cubans, Carlos Marcello, and other elements of the underworld and mafia, and to reinforce the idea that Oswald himself might very well have been a patsy as he proclaimed to all the world after being captured, the very night of the assassination. The main players cited were Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and Guy Bannister, and these were characters with collective ties to the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and anti-Castro groups. Under Garrison's view of the events, Oswald was brought into the story as simply a patsy. The Mafia has plenty of airtime now as a primary suspect, Primarily because after the HSCA hearings were completed, Richard Blakey, who was its chief counsel, began to steer the country away from the lone gunman to a conspiracy theory, but now with an emphasis on the mafia angle. He would write a book and point the finger at mafia forces, including Carlos Marcello, Sam Giancana, and Santos Traficante, three of the most powerful national crime syndicate members. The mafia had more than ample reason to go after the Kennedys perhaps one of the telltale signs that the mob knew more than they were telling is that both Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, two mobsters that figure into this story quite heavily, were murdered in the 1970s just prior to their scheduled time to testify in front of congressional committees. Giancana, just before his church committee appearance, and Roselli, just before his scheduled appearance in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. There are many people who believe that the U.S. plots to kill Castro, which were active right up to the time of the JFK assassination, actually backfired, and that the men sent to go after Castro were turned, turned against Bobby and against the president. Jack Anderson, the celebrated New York Times columnist, brought this to the forefront in the late 1960s. And then there's Lyndon Johnson. He is often cited as the man who stood to gain more, more than anyone, but in Johnson's case, he was truly a step away from political ruin, and perhaps even eventual criminal indictment. You see, it was days before the assassination and the Bobby Baker scandal and the Billy Saul Estes scandal were being investigated and the results were becoming public. 
It was truly a photo finish. Had the assassination not occurred, it would likely have been his ruin. So all this was relevant, not to mention that he hated Bobby Kennedy. And so, the minute he ascended to the presidency, the investigations relative to his involvement in the Bobby Baker case and the Billy Saul Estes matter were shut down. And that would not have been the case were it not for becoming president, and especially the way he became president under the circumstances. The country just couldn't afford another convulsion at that moment. Thank you for listening to episode 139 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. And please join us in the episodes to come. Merry Christmas, everyone, and God bless.